and we'll look at pages 17 through 19 in just a bit. Just to remind you of some things that are coming up on the 16th, that's two weeks from yesterday, we have a bowling event in the afternoon, 12.30 to 2.30 at Woodhaven Lanes. But uh, you need to get tickets for that. They're $6 are the tickets for two games and shoes. Uh, $6 or $6.50, I can't remember. But uh, you pay for that in the resource center, and you get a ticket or tickets for the event. So please do that before you leave today or certainly uh, by next Sunday uh, because the following Saturday is the event. So we have that, and then on the 17th, two weeks from today, and then the following Sunday, the 24th, in the evening from 4.30 to 8, on both of those days, we have our annual servant seminars. And the servant seminars are always in the March-April time frame, and it's time for a time for our church family to get together and think about what we want to accomplish in the coming year. So we lay out two or three or five objectives and those are always important meetings for us, but they're especially important this year because we've just uh, recently moved into our ministry center, and that's going to allow us to do things that we haven't been able to do in the past. So we need to get together and talk about those things that we're going to roll out uh, and do uh, this year and then in the, the years to come as well. So it's something that we encourage all of our members to attend, and we've tried to make it as easy for you as possible by doing a few things. One, offering the same seminar twice, the 17th and the 24th. So you don't come to both, you just pick one. And it's our hope that offering it two times will uh, accommodate folks' schedules. The other thing is, we've made it three and a half hours, and in that three and a half hours, we provide dinner as well. So you don't have to worry about eating before you come. You come, we'll have an hour to an hour and a half of time together, then we'll break for for dinner, and then we'll we'll finish with another hour or so. So we tried to make that easy for you. And then we've added this year, because we, it'll be here and in our own building, we've added child care. So for those of you for whom uh, getting somebody to watch the kids might keep you away, we've tried to eliminate that obstacle as well. But we need to know who is coming or how many are coming to which of the dates, because we are getting food for that. So that would help us for the food planning. And also, who needs help with the child care? So we ask you to go to the Information Center. If you haven't done that already, do that before you leave today, if you could. Sign up for one or the other, and as you do that, uh, indicate if you need child care, and then we will get with you about that, okay? So that's on the 17th and the 24th. In between, the 23rd, Saturday morning, the 23rd, at our house, from 10 a.m. to about noon is our next Newcomer's Brunch. A number of you have already signed up for that, but if you would like to come, you've never been to one, consider yourself a newcomer, even if you've been around for a while. We would love to have you in that setting. We just need to know how many uh, in preparation for the brunch. So give your name at the Resource Center. They'll give you a card with our phone number, a reminder of the time, and uh, a map to our house as as well. And then last but not least, Pastor Matt mentioned uh, this morning that uh, on the 30th, in this building, Saturday the 30th, uh, there's going to be a, an open house celebration for the anniversary of Ron and Sue Biggs. They're celebrating their 50th uh, wedding anniversary. Now, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that Don and June celebrated their, what, 63rd? 63rd? So a couple of our kids are celebrating their 50th. <laughs> Mere children. 
But, you know, we're thrilled to have a place where our members can uh, utilize it for things, things like that. And uh, it's going to be from 2 to 5 in the afternoon on Saturday the 30th. And the entire church family is invited, but they need to know who's coming for planning purposes. So they need you to RSVP if you're coming. And if you did not get an invitation, either as they were going around giving them out or stopping at the information center, then do that. Stop the information center and get one because the entire church family is invited. And then if you do plan to come, follow the instructions there in RSVP. All right, page 17, Biblical Worldview 101, top of page 17, you see it says, Section 3, Reorientation. Here's why. This material and these 10 lessons are divided into three major sections. We've completed the first two, and now today we're starting the third and that will be over the next uh, few weeks from lessons 7 to 10. These next four lessons will be on this issue of reorientation. What is that? We've seen that uh, a biblical view of the world, a biblical perspective on the world, looking at the world the way God does, involves uh, three major categories. It involves creation, fall, and redemption. It involves the fact that God is the creator and we are the creatures. And that God is the creator made humanity unique from the rest of creation and gave special instructions to uh, the first man and woman about who he is and who they are and what he expects them to do. Or to put it in another word, God gave them an orientation to his world. And so section one was orientation. If you're going to look at the world through a biblical lens, which is what a worldview is, then you're first going to see it through creation or the orientation that God gave and all of the implications of that. So we spent several weeks going through creation and how that plays itself out in everyday everyday life. If you weren't here for those sessions, all of our sermons and sessions are on our website, cbctrenton.com. So there's orientation, that is creation, who God is and what he expects from us. But then the Bible tells us that God's good world fell into uh, disrepair because of the entrance of sin into his otherwise good world. And so we call that the fall. You have creation, but then you have the fall, the entrance of sin. And then there are all of the ill effects that sin has had and has on how we then view ourselves, others, and the, and the world. So a biblical worldview involves creation, orientation. It involves the fall, that is sin, or we called it disorientation. Everything's messed up. Everything's distorted. Nothing is as it was intended to be. And we've seen the effects of that. And now we are starting a new section in the final section, and that is reorientation. So, orientation, creation, who God is and what He expects from us, uh, the fall, the entrance of sin, disorientation, who we are and what our problem is. But God doesn't leave it there, thankfully. God tells us in Scripture that He has initiated a restoration, an answer to the problem of sin. And that answer is centered in the person and work of God the Son, Jesus Christ, but it involves you and me. So we're going to see over these next several lessons now, as God is reorienting his world to its original design, that he has chosen to employ you and I in that that process. 
And as you think about your purpose in life, then, a biblical worldview puts your purpose, the reason you're here, the reason you get out of bed in the morning, the reason you have children, the reason you go to work, the reason you make money, the reason you do everything, is because God has given us a mission. And he's called each of us to that mission. And over the next few weeks, we're going to look at that mission that God chooses to use us in to reorient his world. So that is redemption. That is what God is doing about the problem of sin. So three sections, orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. And lesson seven is the first in this third section, reorientation at the top. Page 17, I say, putting your mind to it. And the reason is, as you're going to see, this lesson is focused on, as God reorients His world, it means a change in the way people think. It means God uh, renewing our minds and giving us a, a, a radically now different outlook on the world. It starts with that. And then that radically different outlook is played out in the way we, in the way we live. So putting your mind to it, top of page 17, the creation of a good world and the subsequent fall in sin has created a difficult dynamic for the believer. The good world of the Creator is now disoriented from its original design. As a result, those who have been called out, who have been called out of the world and to God find themselves living, as it were, in, a, in foreign territory. In fact, the Bible calls us strangers and aliens whose, quote, citizenship is in heaven. So how is a believer to navigate the terrain of the world? How are we to be used to redeem that which is broken? This final section will explore the role of the believer in redeeming God's world as well as the resources God has provided to reclaim that which is His. This first lesson is going to focus on the role of discerning thinking in order for us to choose what is good in a fallen world. So in that first line, I say the creation of a good world, the subsequent fall into sins, created a difficult dynamic for the believer. After 30, okay, forget how many years. I've hit 50 now, so the years start to matter more than they did. But anyway, over a long period of time, I've been able to observe the Christian landscape. And as I observe the Christian landscape, uh, I'm convinced that one of the most crucial issues, if not the most crucial issue for Christians, is to have a good handle on the difference between the church and the world and the way they interact, the Christian and everybody else. And if you don't get that right, you'll be messed up. And lots of Christians are, are really messed up. We're going, to, we're going to see why in a bit. But, but it really has its roots in not getting a good handle on the relationship between the Christian and a fallen world, believers and unbelievers, the church and the world. There are lots of ways to, to, try, to, uh, to try to bridge that gap, and many of them are, are wrong. We saw some of them a couple of weeks ago when we looked at being in the world but not of the world. Again, I encourage you to listen online if you weren't here for that. But the creation of a good world and the, of a good world and the subsequent fall in sin has created this difficult dynamic for the believer. And so here we are called as aliens and strangers, as sojourners in a foreign land. Our citizenship is in heaven. So how do we do that? And how do we manage to be effective in the purpose that God has called us to, the cause and the mission 
given that, there is this stark contrast we're going to see in Scripture between the believer and the unbeliever, light and, and darkness, the church and the world, right and wrong. So how do we do that? And failing to get that right will have repercussions in our individual Christian lives and in our churches as well. But it starts with discerning thinking. And it says, that last line in the second paragraph, the role of discerning thinking. Not just thinking, but discerning thinking. And discern, we're going to see on the next page, but discern means to make choices, evaluate. So it's thinking that has a criteria that knows what is best and therefore is able to make choices on the basis of what is best. And if you don't have that basis, if you don't have that clear view of what is best, then you don't know what to choose. And then you're like most people. You're just kind of going with the flow. And so as a result, most Christians, practically speaking, absorb their priorities and their values from the world rather than consciously choosing them and adopting them from Scripture. So the role of discerning thinking is crucial if we are going to choose what is good while living in a sinful, fallen world. So I start on page 17 with the decline of the Christian mind, and then we'll talk about the rise of the Christian mind. The Bible places great emphasis on the use of the mind in the processing of spiritual truth. The Scriptures teach that thought precedes action, or to put it another way, belief determines behavior. So Paul commands in Romans 12 too, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. So I say it, you will absorb, Paul, in Paul's words, his better words, you'll be conformed. If you just float along and absorb, you will be conformed to the image of the world. So how is that to be avoided? Well, it's by a transformation that takes place with the renewing of the mind. Now, if you were with us a few weeks ago, we saw that in creation, God creates man both material and immaterial, physical and spiritual. And so your mind is not just the physical component that we call the gray matter or the brain, but rather in Scripture, the mind is both the physical component, yes, your brain, but interacting with your spirit. And so there's a spiritual component to thinking. Thinking is not just a physical exercise. We think the way we think because we have the spiritual tendencies that we have. And so sinful people think in sinful ways, in distorted ways. That's why Romans 8, 9 says, the, the sinful mind is hostile toward God. It, Romans chapter 1 speaks of the futility of the unbelieving words, world's thinking. So thinking, now get this, thinking is a spiritual matter. You know, how you meditate, what you think about, and not just what you think about, but how you think about it, is a spiritual matter. Our minds are both physical and spiritual, the brain and the spirit. And that's why, middle of that paragraph, 1 Corinthians 14, I will pray with the spirit and I will pray with the understanding also. 
I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the understanding also. So in that passage, 1 Corinthians 14, again, as we saw a few weeks ago, Paul, who wrote that, is addressing the disconnect that the church at Corinth and many people today try to make between the spirit and, and the brain, the spirit and the mind. So in their view, the spirit bypasses the mind. So the spirit interacts directly with your spirit. Some immaterial component bypasses the mind. Thinking is not what's important. It's, it's my spiritual component and how that plays out is usually, in practical terms, feeling. What they mean by spirit is how I feel, not how I think. That shows up in worship services. I grew up in an environment like 1 Corinthians 14 that Paul wrote to correct. And my church didn't get the memo. So we're... We're doing all the stuff that 1 Corinthians 14 is supposed to correct. We're doing. And so we were big on the move of the Spirit and the immediacy of the Spirit. Immediacy, meaning not mediated. So the Spirit is not mediated. The Spirit just hits you. Your brain plays no role. You're kind of an empty vessel that the Spirit just hits, and then you do whatever the Spirit is prompting you to do. So we would often talk about the move of the Spirit. And I remember as a kid, you know, as a junior higher and then as a senior higher, and I'm trying to figure all this out because, you know, in God's providence, I end up going to this Baptist school, and they're telling me, you're wrong. And I'm going to church every weekend. Then I go to school on Monday, and I was just confused. And that confusion has continued into my 50th year now. (laughs) But there I am in church trying to figure all this out. And the Spirit is moving. And, and that's what I'm told, the Spirit's moving. Now we know the Spirit's moving because people are moving. And, so, and we call that the move of the Spirit. And the Spirit would move primarily when two things would happen. Most primarily when the music was playing. And I determined as a, as a high school kid... The Spirit's got rhythm. Because the Spirit starts when the instruments start. And the Spirit ends when the instruments end. It was amazing. So I made this connection between the instruments and the Spirit. And I was, I was concerned. And then the second way was in the preaching. The anointed preaching. Anointed preaching means loud. It means very charismatic, running back and forth. And the spe- you could womp up the spirit that way too. So I started to question this whole thing. You know, the, the spirit appears to be invoked and end and dismissed <laughs> with the starting and ending of the instruments. And whether or not the preacher really got going. And the, the mistake that, that, that was made was that, on the one hand, it's the Spirit moving, and we don't want to do anything to get in the way of the Spirit and the immediacy of the Spirit. But in fact, we had all of these uh, entrapment or uh, accoutrements 
to help us get the Spirit going. So I began to see this kind of contradiction going on. And ultimately at age 19, I ended up leaving the Pentecostal church in which I was growing up and became a Baptist, and now I'm a liberal Bible church guy and all of that. But back to the middle of that paragraph, therefore, Christians have no good grounds for rejecting reason. Christians cannot grasp God's truth without the use of this divinely given ability. The fact that God in His sovereignty chose to express His truth to us in rational words and ideas demonstrates that He intends for us to use our reasoning ability, says Arthur Johnson down at the bottom of the footnote in an excellent little book, Faith Misguided. But unfortunately, the priority of the mind has been deprecated by many well-meaning believers. And so, not just our Pentecostal friends, but also, as we're going to see, even in fundamentalist kinds of churches, and we'll see why, but Christians of all sorts have deprecated the role of the mind and thinking in the life of the Christian. Harry Blamires, in his book, The Christian Mind, says this, there is no longer a Christian mind. There is still, of course, a Christian ethic, a Christian practice, and a Christian spirituality. As a moral being, the modern Christian subscribes to a code other than that of the non-Christian. As a member of the church, he undertakes obligations and observations ignored by the non-Christian. As a spiritual being, in prayer and meditation, he strives to cultivate a dimension of life unexplored by the non-Christian. But as a thinking being, and I say emphasis his, thinking, should be uh, bolded, the modern Christian has succumbed to secularization. He accepts religion, its morality, its worship, its spiritual culture, but he rejects the religious view of life. The view which sets all earthly issues in the context of the eternal. The view which relates all human problems, social, political, and cultural, to the doctrinal foundations of the Christian faith. The view which sees all things here below in terms of God's supremacy and earth's transitoriness, in terms of heaven and of hell. There's a statement for you. And what we've been trying to nail down is the last few lines of that. That's what a biblical worldview does. You see everything now through a different set of lenses. But he's saying most Christians don't. Most Christians float along and do not actively engage their minds so that they make discerning choices about the things that are good and healthy and to be pursued and how to prioritize and value and live life. Now why? Why is that the case? And there are a number of reasons, and I have them on page 18. There are religious reasons and there are cultural reasons. First, the religious reasons that there has been this deprecation of the Christian mind, this kind of, you know, we we have the spiritual life, we have the religious life, but the intellectual life is separated from that. Why is that? And we're going to look at some reasons why, but... You hear it when people say things like, look, let's, let's not think about that stuff. Let's not talk about that stuff. Let's not, for instance, talk about doctrinal truth issues. Let's all just love Jesus. Well, I mean, I, I, can, I understand the sentiment, and so do you. Let's not get bogged down in how many angels can dance on the head of a pen and 
you know, all kinds of philosophical nonsense. It doesn't make any, any difference. I, I get that. But even when you say, let's all just love Jesus, let's love Jesus, those words are freighted with meaning. What is love? Don't I have to think about that? What does love look like? We say, let's just love Jesus. Okay, let's do that. What does love look like from a biblical standpoint? Or who is Jesus? What Jesus are we talking about? Is, is he the Jesus that is my waiter? That when I call to him, he goes and fetches and brings stuff back? And that's kind of the popular view many people have. Jesus is my best friend. You hear many people talk about Jesus, and I'm not trying to be sacrilegious, but really, they could just as easily be talking about their dog. Who is Jesus? Well, the Bible says he's God. <laughs> the Bible says he's master. The Bible says he is Lord. He is not. He is Savior, and he is master, and he is Lord, and he's all of that. Now, love him. What does that look like? Let's love Jesus. You still have to engage the mind on that, don't you? If you're going to get it right. But we don't like to do that. And I understand that we, especially we seminary types, you know, we go to seminary and we study all this stuff. And, you know, prob- some percentage of it, none of my profs are here. Okay. Turn this off on the recording. <laughs> but some high percentage could be dismissed and you would still be okay. But we graduate and we want to make sure that you all know we got our money's worth. So we make sure we bring all that stuff to you guys too. And so people tire of it. And I understand that. But we should not dismiss the role of the mind and thinking from a biblical standpoint. There are religious reasons we do so and cultural reasons. Religious reasons. The myth of neutrality. What I mean by the myth of neutrality is it is a myth, it's not true, that, that people and culture are neutral. It is not true. People are not neutral toward God. And culture, the world, as it expresses itself, is not neutral toward God. Now, friends, just a cursory reading of your Bible shows that. The, the Bible says, you know, in, in, in Ephesians chapter 2, that, that we were born dead in trespasses and sins. And like the rest, we thought in particular patterns, in particular ways. And therefore, it is necessary, 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 5, to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. There is no such thing, then, as a neutral individual a neutral culture toward God. The Bible says God is contra mundum. That is Latin for contra, contrary, against. And mundum, mundane, we get. But it means against the world. The Bible teaches God is against the world. Now, he's against the world as it exists. Now, thankfully, he's also a gracious God and a loving God who... God the Son has come into the world and died for those in the world. But the world, as it is, is contrary to God. And so John 17, 9, in Jesus' prayer, he says, 
My followers are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. As we saw Romans 12, 2, be not conformed to the world. James 1, 26, religion that God our Father accepts is this, to care for widows and orphans in their affliction and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. James 4, 4, friendship with the world is hatred toward God. And then 1 John 2, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, for all that is in the world. All right, do we get the idea? (laughs) That God and the world are not on good terms. But we don't think we have to engage in this intellectual battle because of the myth of neutrality. Things are not as bad as, uh, we, we think they're not as bad as the Bible portrays them. And then you add to that common grace and total depravity. What is that? On the one hand, you, you all sit here and you say, okay, I understand that the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I understand that the Bible says that in the days of Noah, God saw that the thoughts and intents of man's heart was, were only evil continually. That's what it says. <laughs> and he destroyed the world. I understand that the, the Bible says that we come into this world dead in trespasses. I get all that. We're all sinners. But I see all this good stuff that non-Christian people do. How do I explain that? So on the one hand, I hear you, Brown, (coughs) saying that people are totally depraved. And they don't look totally depraved. I saw a guy, I saw a Jehovah's Witness help an old woman across the street the other day. So, you know, he's not a Christian, so from a biblical worldview standpoint, he doesn't doesn't have the Spirit, he's not motivated by the Spirit, and yet he's helping this old woman across the street. How do you explain that? How do you explain common grace and total depravity? Well, in God's common grace, people still do good things. But it's not because people are better than the Bible says they are. One, it's still a matter of God's grace that he restrains the effects of evil. And in his his common grace, people still do good things, but understand this. An unbeliever never does the right thing for what? Right? Because all have sinned falling short of the glory of God. An unbeliever may do the right thing, but never for the glory of God. And, but common grace makes it look like things are better than they, than they are. God in His common grace is restraining the effects of evil. He does that through laws. He does that through the presence of Christians in the world and the Holy Spirit. And if you want any proof that total depravity will be unleashed in all its gory ugliness, when the restraint is removed, the Bible warns us about this. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the Bible says that in the King James, the mystery of iniquity is already at work. And it will be revealed in a coming day when the man of lawlessness comes. Who's the man of lawlessness? The The Bible calls him the Antichrist in a future day. And it says that, that, but in the meantime, there is something, 2 Thessalonians 2, restraining 
until the restraint and the restrainer is removed. And when that happens, you don't want to be here. The Bible calls it the Great Tribulation. And it will be a time when, you know, like, like Genesis chapter 6, when God said, my spirit will not always contend, strive with man. And when the restraint of God's common grace mediated through his spirit, through his people, through the other institutions that he has graciously given, when those are removed, then man's evil heart and all that it expresses will be unleashed. We've seen it in the past. God is saying it will happen in the future. So one of the reasons people don't engage in their minds is they think things aren't as bad as the Bible says they really are. Because common grace gives this myth of neutrality. Another reason is mysticism. What is that? It's a form of religious practice which seeks direct knowledge of God rather than an intellectual knowledge of Him. That is, the Spirit goes directly to the Spirit. So this is like almost all, almost all of the TV preacher types. The televangelists, the health and wealth guys, they're all, the Spirit told me, we need to build, therefore you need to give money, that kind of stuff. And the Spirit just kind of moves on their spirit and tells them things. And, they, and, and people like Kenneth Copeland, whose mentor Kenneth Hagen, who is, who's now dead, but uh, this is what they, they, they teach. I actually saw Kenneth Hagen preaching this. He quoted the book of Proverbs in the King James where it says, the spirit dwells in your belly. Now, in the King James, it says that. Now, it really means that you know, the spirit dwells in your inmost, inside you. But the King James says belly. Now, I kind of like this because it means some of us have more of the spirit than, than others. <laughs> so... Some of us are clearly more spiritual than, than others. But, but then they go on to make the case that the Spirit, and then he actually did this. He would actually point, and he would go like, God is talking, and then God's talking to my spirit. And notice what's being bypassed. The brain, the mind. That's mysticism. Or pietism. What is that? A variety of Christianity that emphasizes personal experience. It can lead to an inordinate subjectivism and emotionalism, and it can discourage careful scholarship. So it's, it's not concerned about the basis for why we do what we do, the foundations for why we do what we do, the ideas and the doctrines and the teachings that undergird it. Let's just do it. It emphasizes experience. Now, again, I understand the sentiment, but it, it is very dangerous. Because as Blay Myers points out in that quote, then you can still have a Christian ethic and you're just going along on your merry way doing the stuff you always did and you forget why it is you're doing it. And the foundation upon which you're supposed to be doing it. And then there is the fundamentalist modernist controversy. That was about 100 years ago when that really broke loose, the turn of the last century. And I say the so-called scholarship that gave, gave rise to modernism, the eventual takeover of the denominations by liberalism, made many fundamentalists very wary of academic pursuits. The result has been that biblical truth is often compartmentalized from other truth. Now, what does that mean? Here's what it means. A number of the schools that some of you might be aware of uh, today started evangelical kinds of schools, 
um, Bible-believing kinds of schools, started as a result of people having to leave schools that they once taught in, denominations they were once part of, because those schools and those denominations in, the, in what's called the modernist controversy began to deny cardinal truths of the Christian faith. So, for instance, that the Bible is without error began to be denied. So, as an example, Princeton Seminary. Princeton Seminary uh, uh, was and is a seminary that is run by the Presbyterian Church USA. And Princeton Seminary began to have faculty who went to Germany to get their doctorates, came back from Germany, were taught German higher criticism of the Bible, brought that into Princeton, and began to deny that the Bible is without error and other things that would then go with that. So if you're a guy teaching at Princeton and you're in the Presbyterian Church USA, what are you going to do? So if you're J. Gresham Machen... You write a book called, in 1923, called Christianity and Liberalism. And that is, a, that, is a, that is a great book. But the title is great, too, because there's Christianity and there's liberalism. Notice, they're not the same thing. That's what he's saying. You can't take the approach that my colleagues are taking and still have Christianity. He and his, some of his colleagues ultimately left Princeton. And they started a new seminary in Philadelphia, Westminster Theological Seminary. I've had the privilege of taking classes at Westminster Seminary in Machen Hall. And uh, knowing that history, it's really cool to be there. So guys had to leave. Now get this. These guys had to leave their retirement and their libraries and everything that were owned by the denomination and start over. But they were willing to do that. And you had that happen over and over again in denominations and institutions in the fundamentalist modernist controversy. Now, as a result of that, a number of people just were wary of academics then. And what has happened is there's been a dumbing down of academics in evangelical circles. And, you know, when I, when I was a kid, as I say, I was Pentecostal and... You know, we didn't need any of that anyway because we had the anointing of the Spirit and the Spirit would just, really. So we didn't need any book learning. But even for people who are not charismatic and Pentecostal and in our heritage, Baptist circles, there has been a real deprecating of the need for education. And so I've been to ordination councils where seminary is called cemetery on purpose, to demean seminary. Who needs to go to cemetery? Okay? They'll just kill your enthusiasm. Get out there and do something for Jesus. Okay? So you get these guys who are ordained. They get out there. They're on fire. They're very enthusiastic, but enthusiastic without knowledge, and it creates all kinds of problems. And so as a, but, but it has its roots in this suspicion about academics that come out of the very unhappy experience of liberalism coming into the denominations, really stealing the machinery of the denominations, people having to leave, start new institutions, and they don't want that to happen again. So there are religious reasons, cultural reasons. 
One of the reasons we don't think and think discerningly is the connotations of terminology that we use today. Connotation. You know, there's a word has its denotation. That is what it means according to the dictionary. But then there's what it connotes, what when people hear it, what it signals to them. And so there's what these terms mean, denote, but then there's what, they, what people hear when you say them. So look at discrimination. See, discrimination, the denotation of that, what it really means is a really good thing. In fact, I just say it, you know, in a folksy sort of way. If you don't discriminate, you're an idiot, okay? Don't repeat that. Uh, Because if you understand what discriminate means, it simply means to make choices, right? So somebody's a discriminating reader uh, or, you know... You're simply evaluating and making choices based on that evaluation. Now, we, it connotes for us, though, evaluations on improper bases. So racial discrimination, for instance. Well, it's not that discrimination is bad. It's discrimination on the basis of race is bad. So we we need to be discriminating. Or criticism. Critis is a Greek word, which means to judge, to evaluate. But when we hear criticism, we immediately think of negative evaluations, negative judgments. And so one of the cultural reasons is the the terminology. But there's also the decline in people learning to think in our education system. Now, I've got to just say I'm thankful for all of our teachers here. Um, and And I mean that. And I thank God that we've got Christian influence in our public schools in the form of brothers and sisters who are taking it on. Okay, so God bless you, and I mean that. Uh, so these are general comments about the condition of our education system. But it was uh, George Orwell who said a long time ago, we have now sunk to such a depth that the restatement of the obvious is the first duty of intelligent men. I mean, we, we used to be able to talk about conventional wisdom and common knowledge, and now we can't because people just don't know. They just don't know stuff that was just third grade, fourth grade, and fifth grade kids had to know back in the day. Kids graduate, and they don't know. So the decline of education also means then the decline of learning how to think and critical thinking skills. And then there is the mix-up on pluralism and relativism. People think they're the same thing. We live in a pluralistic society. Thank the Lord for that. What it means is there can be plural, many views expressed. That's a good thing because it means we get to express our views. We have the freedom to do that. But in the minds of many people, pluralism becomes relativism. Because everybody is allowed to express their own view, then in folks' minds, all views are equally valid. That's relativism. And those are not the same thing. So in America, you have the constitutional right to be theologically wrong. A la what I said in the first hour, and then there got to be some people with the guts to say that. There is such a thing as being wrong. There's such a thing as being dangerously wrong. But we mix up pluralism and relativism. 
So what do we do about it? That's the decline. How does the Christian mind rise? Well, I would love to tell you that, but I can't. Alas, our time is gone. I want to sing Carol Burnett. I'm so glad we had this time together. <laughs> but it is gone, okay? So let's ask the Lord to help us and uh, come back next week. Father, thank you for giving us the facility, the, the faculty of the mind. It's your gift to us. And you gave it for your purpose. It is for us to receive your truth. It's for us to see your world. It is us for, to, for us to perceive and to, to make choices and evaluations and to discriminate <clears throat> based upon the truth that you have given in your word. Then we can clearly see that which with, with which we are confronted and then make God-honoring choices. So, Lord, help us in no way, small or large, to deprecate this gift that you have given. Help us to see our minds as something to be cultivated, as something to be gradually transformed by your Spirit and through your Word so that we begin to think your thoughts after you and we begin to see your world as you do and we begin to see ourselves and we begin to see 2013 America and Southeast Michigan and beyond as you do. And then, Lord, we will be able to see our role within it more clearly. And then we will be able to see our call to action more clearly, but then and only then. And so, Lord, help us this week to be conscious of the propositions that we're confronted with. Help us to be very careful about that which we allow into our minds and that which we entertain as true. Help us, Lord, to filter it all through the, through the Word of God. And as a result, may our thinking be changed. We ask you to grant us safety this week. And we ask you to allow us ministry for you this week. And we ask you to bring us back together next Lord's Day. In Jesus' name, amen.